A Hundred Hands, written by Bibi Berkey. She didn't have the words just then to tell him how much she hated him. Instead, the resentment expanded inside her until she seemed to be composed of it. She pulled her bare knees up to her chin and looked across at him from where she was sitting in the bows. He had his right hand on the tiller and his eyes ahead. Do you or do you not know where we are? She asked again through clenched teeth. She was cold. I do not, he replied sourly. He'd been so keen to get them into the dinghy at eight that morning that she'd felt compelled to go along. Always this enthusiasm for everything. The acting career, the puppy farm, the market garden, the business degree, the bestseller, the health food stall. It always began with an evangelical self-belief, a conviction that he was born to it, could conquer it and the world. And always it petered into a final degradation, a quiet wiping of the hands of the whole sorry lot of it. And now sailing. He had barely grasped the rudiments in a couple of classes off the Isle of Wight before borrowing the money to buy a double-handed dinghy. And here was the same repetitive behaviour in her, going along with it as she had everything else. She even paid for the flimsy-looking thing to be transported to the North German coast, where he insisted they should start their sailing careers. He'd got himself enthralled with the notion of the otherness of this location the remoteness of it, as though no one else had ever sailed the Baltic Sea before. It was very warm and very still when Ned left early that morning from Nienhagen, and the pale trunks of the huge trees that lined the coast slipped by like shy giants jostling for cover. It had been a novelty to her then, this strange moss-green landscape. She'd let her eyes be lulled by the peaceful curves of white inlets and the endless firs of coastal grass. But then the trees had shrunk and finally disappeared, and they were out to sea, and her boredom had arrived. There'd been so many times that she could have run from him, and yet she never had, and now, with this newest venture, she felt finally trapped as though accepting it had underlined her complicity for the rest of their lives. It felt to her like the final acquiescence. She watched him fuss over the mainsail and the blocks, as though he knew what he was doing and couldn't bring herself even to criticise him. It wasn't until nearly two in the afternoon, when they'd been drifting for an excruciating six hours, that he finally admitted that they were lost and that he had no means of knowing where they were. I'm cold, she complained. Well, why did you bring something warmer? You said not to. You said we'd only be out for two hours. I don't have warmer clothes. I don't have my phone. I don't have anything that will help us find our way back. And though he didn't say it out loud, she saw him mouth the words, Shut up! to the sea. And her fury and indignation rose, this time gripping her round the neck, constricting her throat. She stood up and felt the breeze first on the damp backs of her knees and shivered. Was this really the place for a full confrontation? The time to bring up the acting career and the puppy farm, the business degree? Uh... What's that? she asked, 
suddenly distracted by a madmass that she'd not been aware of. He spun round. Bloody hell, I never saw that. How long has that been there? Oh, you've been sailing the bloody thing, you should know. You're supposed to be navigating. It was an island, and as he swung the boat around and came up ahead of it, they saw a, a stark beach framed by the same pallid trunks of the mainland. It wasn't huge by any means, but possibly big enough for them to find help in some form of communication. She didn't even know at this point if the residents spoke German or Danish or even Norwegian. He told her that they needed to find a suitable place to moor, and she scanned the shore for an inlet. There, she said pointing to what seemed like a quiet, sandy break between rocks. There's another boat there as well. Together, they struggled to get the dinghy in line with the inlet, and with some considerable bumping, they got it up the channel and onto the bank. I'm never setting foot inside that thing again, she muttered as they stumbled over the side. Oh, come on, he cajoled her, putting her arm around her shoulders, that cheerful confidence swiftly back again. I'll buy you some chocolate, that always fixes things. She freed herself from him as he set off, paused to inspect the other boat. It had been pulled up on the bank like theirs, but it was a simpler affair, not much more than a rowboat with a dark wooden hull. Inside it, on the bench, the pages of a map book fluttered in the sea breeze their colours sun-bleached and barely there. They scrambled up the incline that bordered the beach, clinging to the dune grass to pull themselves up, and at the top instantly found a path directing them into the island's wooded interior. They automatically took it. In the woods, the air was heavy and resinous, made her sleepy. The path meandered around trunk after indistinguishable trunk, and they had no sense of what direction they were going in. There was something stifling about the trapped warmth of the place. She seemed to enter in and out of daydreams as she followed the path behind him. Look, she told him, lingering beside a tree, you're barely taller than her. A white linen sweater had been draped over one of its branches and was already greening from sunless neglect. Someone must have dropped it and someone else hung it up there to be found. He wasn't listening was well ahead of her now, intent on reaching the end of the path. But she couldn't bring herself to catch up, kept her eyes down, amused by all the evidence of previous visitors. A cigar butt lying among the dried leaves at the edge of the path, a little wigwam of sticks idly constructed by young hands in a perfectly circular clearing, a, a green glass bottle standing tilted beside a stump that must have been used as a stool. Everywhere were the signs of people who had come before. And then she heard his voice and looked up at last and saw that he had stopped, his hands on his hips. Good grief! Look at that beauty! She jogged up to him and realised they were at the end of the path and they were now at the foot of a wide, recently mown lawn. At the lawn's other end stood a building entirely white. It took her breath away because of its perfection, its silent integrity, a place of clean, good-for-you authority. And despite its age, it was utterly untarnished, its windows pristine, its crisp deco design as neat and glamorous as it must have been in its heyday. What is it? A hospital? 
she asked. A hotel? I hope the latter, he replied, setting off across the lawn. She didn't like to cross it, felt too conspicuous and lagged behind. It was only when she was halfway over that she realised that the entrance of the building was open. She heard a phone ring, a door close. I don't think it's a hotel. It looks like some kind of institution. Let's not go in there. He didn't turn back. Didn't wait. Typical. But on and on and through the open front door. He'd only been three seconds ahead of her, but, but now he was gone. She stood in the centre of a checkerboard floor in front of a vast walnut reception desk. There was no one behind it. She called out. Hello? The elongation of her voice told her the place was empty. She called again and looked to her left and right, down mustard yellow corridors. No one answered. Not even him. She felt the anger rise, the usual exasperation. This is not the time, she muttered, and set off down the corridor to her left. The floor was a continuation of the blocks of black and white in the main lobby, and she looked down as she walked, placing her feet as precisely as she might a counter in a board game. A phone rang. A door closed. She stopped and waited, her eyes wide, her head on one side. Oh, an idiotic thought slipped in and out of her mind that it was him playing games with her. Where are you? she asked. Only she asked it quietly, her voice small and enclosed by the ward walls. There were glass panel doors at either side of the corridor. She pushed one open and looked in a room belly eight foot by eight foot, containing a bed, a wash basin and a cupboard. She closed the door and went and peered into the room opposite. It was the same. She presumed that behind all the doors were similar rooms. It was clearly a ward with private spaces for the patients rather than the open-plan arrangements they had back at home. In the corridor stood a trolley with a water basin. She swiped at it with her fingers, expecting dust, finding none. At the end of the corridor was a door, and opening this she found another passage exactly like the one behind her, flanked by those small comfortable cells on either side. This is where they come to be cured, she heard herself say, to find peace. This is where people come to be fully alone, and free of the idiotic conflict of human relations. They could escape to their tiny rooms and fall asleep looking out of the windows at the woods beyond the lawn. They were closed in and safe, and there was silence. Perpetual silence. A place of nullity through dependable repetition. A phone rang. A door closed. She ran along the corridor and opened the door at the end. This time, she was in a stairwell, and so she took the steps, driven by the desire to go deeper into the heart of the place, to know it properly. Her feet should have echoed through the emptiness, but the sound of her footfall was caught up and muffled, her presence constantly wiped out. 
she arrived in a suite of wide open rooms with lavender grey walls and picture windows through which she thought she saw the sea above the fringe of forest yellow armchairs were dotted around the rooms like rocks on a shore not randomly and yet not in an explicable pattern either she threaded through them and felt the pleasure of their rootedness Standing at one of the windows, she looked down onto the lawn and saw a picnic blanket spread out and pinned at its four corners by an arrangement of cups and flasks. It was to the right of the front door, and they must have walked beside it when they arrived, but she didn't remember noticing it. She turned away from the window and continued her wandering path through the armchairs, stroking each seat back as she went, diverted by the peculiar sense that she was looking down not only at her hand, but a hundred other hands blurring into her own, trailing along at the same time as hers, routinely, monotonously, entirely at home. She should stay, ease her heart. No torpor, love it. What kind of distraction did these people need that only isolation provided? What kind of island rises from nowhere in a silent sea. She emerged from the last of the lounges and came out onto a spacious landing. She realised that she had arrived at the top of the central staircase which led down to the main lobby to exactly where she'd started her journey. She stood against the railing and looked down at the mingling squares of black and white below her in the gloom. Everything seemed so dark down there, despite the fact that it couldn't have been much past four o'clock on a midsummer's afternoon. The door must be closed, the windows shuttered, the place needing to be left alone. Did she have to leave? Was it even time to leave? Suddenly she couldn't even quite recall how they'd got there or indeed where they'd come from. Her memory of outside already fogged and uncertain. A phone rang, and a door closed. And that seemed to be her cue. She placed her hand on the stair rail and felt her feet move, carried down for her by the same insistent force that had ushered her through the building, step after precise step, down the grey marble staircase. Stop! It was him calling out to her. She awoke and looked down into the dim hallway and saw him, sitting on a bench by the wall, big eyes blank, his flattened palm indicating for her to halt. Don't ruin it, he begged her. She was so perfect. She finished her descent out of step now, with a familiar anger rising. She stalked across the lobby floor to his side. Where have you been? Why did you hide from me? I've been looking everywhere for you. His eyes still on the staircase. He answered. I've been here. I haven't moved since I arrived. She wanted to shake him, strike him, anything but accept him. We have to go, she said. I feel like I've been asleep. We have to go. But he shook his head. I can't, he said his eyes still on the staircase. She's wonderful, isn't she? What? Who's wonderful? 
She followed his gaze but could see nothing, only the block of shadow that made up the staircase. Why is it dark? she asked him. The stairs are so dark. Just keep looking. She kept looking. Spent minutes looking. I don't understand, she complained. But he wouldn't remove his gaze, and neither could she now, her eyes seeking some explanation of his rapt attention. And then she saw a light, faint, whitish. It was as though her eyes were adjusting to the depths of the night. Look at her, he said. At who? But even as she asked it, she felt the question reform itself to accommodate the change in what she was seeing. The light was taking form, human form, flickering into a kind of life. Oh, my God. I told you. It was a woman coming down the stairs. No, not just a woman. A nurse, to be precise, in a white dress uniform, buttoned from collar to hem, a cap low on her brow. She was young and slim, but as vaporous as old footage. Her edges indistinct, her mass not solid. She made her way down the stairs, her white shoes so definite in their setting down. And when she reached the foot of the stairs, she held out her arm, smiled, and shook her head. And then she was gone. Where is she? Wait, he said, and held his breath. Then, look. And the nurse was back, making her way down the stairs once more, the rhythm of her descent exactly as it had been the time before. Her edges still as vague, guttering like a dying light. Down she came, her attention directly ahead of her, confident, gently official. And at the foot of the stairs, just as she had a moment ago, she held out her arm and she smiled and she shook her head. Once you see her, he said, you can't not see her. She just keeps coming down. And down. I have to keep watching her. But she was frightened now. Suddenly. And only because she was looking at him and finding him so unknown and perplexing. That had been her not ten minutes before as she explored the ward. Slack and at home. Yearning for the peace, the repetition, the life of an institution. She had been growing comfortable in the dark, adjusting herself to it. We have to go she said, watching the white figure descend once more and deliver her routine, smiling refusal at the foot of the stairs. He wasn't moving. I said, we have to go. The moment was here to break, to end the repetition, to leave him and the compromised life. She had to escape them all, however warm and safe it seemed inside, however numbing the air. A phone rang, a door closed. She ran to the entrance and pushed at the door with her body it wouldn't give. Again she shoved at it with her shoulder and felt the tears forming as the door refused to give way. I want to get out, she called hoarsely through the door and then turned around. 
Ahead of her, coming down the stairs, was the nurse, sure-footed, in control. Let me out, she cried again, and looked to either side of her, seeing nothing in the darkness, not even him, he was gone. Please, let me out. She turned back to the door, hoping to make out a handle somewhere. She couldn't see anything, not a thing. Behind her, the nurse was descending the stairs, the pale, glimmering edges of her only illuminating presence in the lobby. She had to open the door, had to find the handle, and then she felt it, the hard outline of it, with her hip, and knew where it was. She reached out a hand to turn it, and as she did so, a hundred other hands reached for it at the same time. She saw them now, old, young, all desperate, all grasping as wildly as hers to find the way out, all failing. She turned again, and the nurse stood directly before her, smiling, but holding out her arm, insisting that nobody was going anywhere, and shaking her head at them all. A Hundred Hands, written by Bibby Berkey, read by Mark Lingwood, Music composed by Timothy Bond. Studio production Francis Not Been Webb.